environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Golm. And thank you all for joining us for another episode. Uh, Today, I hope you all are ready to dive into some truly fascinating discussions of the aquatic variety. Dive. (laughs) I got jokes today. I didn't last time. (laughs) As we welcome our guest, Melody Jew. Melody is an associate professor of English at UC Santa Barbara. She grew up in California and studied at UC Davis and Duke University. Professor Jew brings a passion for oceans, scuba diving, speculative fiction, and media to her work, including her book, Wild Blue Media, Thinking Through Seawater, which won the Speculative Fictions and Cultures of Science Book Award. She is also the co-editor of Saturation and Elemental Politics with Rafiko Ruiz, and is working on a new project about seaweeds as media forms in trans-Pacific contexts. Thank you so much for joining us today, Melody. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm very fascinated about the, the seaweeds as media yes, forms. Like, yes. Definitely have to have you back to talk about that one. I know. Excited to hear about that one. So today we're going to bring back the root word segment because in the uh, anthology saturation, actually, they discuss the root word. So I'm going to quote from the book. Saturation draws its etymology from the Latin satur, meaning full or glutted while the Oxford English Dictionary adds that saturation is the condition of being thoroughly soaked. Yet saturation quickly exceeds its aquatic valences, offering a sensitivity to co-presences, transformations, and processes. Saturation is useful for analyzing situations in which the elements involved may be difficult or impossible to separate. All right. Thank you for providing us with a root word. <laughs> it's yeah. great to have somewhere to jump <laughs> off of. <laughs> so let's let's just get right into it. Can you tell us about what blue media is? Because you know maybe we don't we have readers or listeners who have not read your book, perhaps. And so if you could introduce what you mean by blue media as a concept, sure. So. Wild Blue Media uh, is thinking a lot about positionality. Um, From what body and under what environmental conditions do we perceive blueness? Um, A lot of times, just like green, um, blue is a shorthand for the ocean, even though the ocean, of course, can exhibit many different colors. Um, And one of the examples I talk about uh, in in the prologue to my book actually has to do with the uh, old English word for the ocean, meaning um, uh, wit, like white colored, almost Mm. pearly or opaque, which you see uh, maybe in California at certain times of the morning or the evening. Uh, So the ocean changes color a lot, even when you're just on the surface. And of course, it changes color once you submerge deep into the water column. Um, So I think of blue as a provisional word uh, for that stands for an interest in the media of the ocean, media under the ocean, that always calls into question what eyes are you seen with, what lens, under what can, what circumstances of, uh, of perception. Awesome. So uh, I, I want to I may, maybe jump back in history a little bit further. So what originally drew you to um, wanting to look at the ocean as, as kind of a specific form of media or the media of the ocean or anything <laughs> like that? 
Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, you know, it's it was a, actually a, a very much a, a retroactive process. Uh, I think that is pretty maybe pretty normal in um, in a lot of uh, you know people's pathways towards becoming becoming an academic or at least just going through the um, process of writing writing a thesis. And for me, it was the the aha moment was watching. Uh, David Attenborough narrate BBC's Blue Planet, uh, mm. the original um, series from the mm-hmm. early 2000s, where, and this was originally sort of just for me, you know, therapy watching, I was like, I'm going to relax and watch an ocean <laughs> documentary. <laughs> and, but, but in the process of doing this, he would describe these alien sea creatures uh, at, that live in the depths of the um, sort of the Hadal zone or the abyss uh, and then talk about how there have been more people who've been in outer space than to the very bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was at that moment that I sort of had an epiphany going, oh, wait a second, um, this lifelong love for the ocean that I've, I, I can't even trace the origins of like, I'm originally from from California. So this is, this, you know, it's a huge figure in, uh, yeah, in my, in my, um, in my life. And, uh, it's like, Oh, that's, this connects so strongly to my interest in science fiction. I need to, I think I can shift a little bit and really center on, on the ocean. And this happened, uh, while I was taking coursework on in spatial studies, media theory. And I realized that none of this coursework was addressing the ocean. All of it was terrestrially based. And so that I think was not just an accident of the syllabus or, you know, it may be even anything um, direct or intentional, but it really piqued my curiosity for wondering who else has written about the ocean from humanity's perspectives and what narratives about the ocean or studies of the ocean have, um, are, are out there that aren't just about sailing um, and the ocean surface. Who's Who's gone below the below the waterline um, and what have they written about it? Um, and it was around that time that I discovered um, Stefan Helmerich's uh, recently published book at, um, around then, um, Alien Ocean, Anthropological Voyages in Microbial Seas, which maybe wins the award for best subtitle. Um, and <laughs> and uh, it was just this amazing um, synthesis of so, so many things, um, including the narratives that were coming out of ocean microbiology to bear on stories about the origins of life. And so for someone with uh, training in science studies, literature, uh, and media, and um, you know, this uh, really modeled an amazing way of how one can look for stories within the science and um, talk about them in conversation with just, um, I mean, some of uh, just, you know, fantastically provocative theory in the humanities. Um, and so I thought to myself, okay, well, this is, this is the model. What, what can we, what can we do now? Yeah. And I, I while you were talking to that, it made me, um, another connection. I, I, I kind of realized there is, you know, e- even scholars are, are clearly kind of missing this larger part of, of the earth. But I, I was thinking about how so often people, you know, when they, when they try to, there are little pithy comments against like, well, cl- climate change isn't happening because, you know, temperature, or whatever. <laughs> but they, they completely forget about like the, the temperature of the ocean and the fluctuations of that and what's happening there. And um, which is ironic considering, I mean, like <laughs> most of the, the earth is is water, is, you know, ocean and yeah. um, and people, <laughs> you know, but and, and myself included, I, you know, I, I, I tend to kind of default to to terrestrial things and um partially because the ocean terrifies me but um you know it's uh it's uh yeah it's that's it's where those questions see. about being you know fear oh. the ocean are coming from yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, that would be funny if you had written. I actually wrote those. I actually wrote that question. And oh. it's, because, it's because I study horror. Oh, yeah. And so that's why I was interested in it. But a lot of people are scared of the ocean. See, I, I think I relate more to you, Melody. And you went to Duke. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. And I was oh. born and I was born and raised on the beach in Wilmington, North Carolina. I know where that and, is very well. Yes. <laughs> and so for me, I love the ocean. <laughs> and I, I, I have also been quite um, surprised by the lack of focus on the ocean, I guess, as as well in sort of the environmental humanities and in, in studying kind of specific elements and mm-hmm. writing about mm-hmm. specific, as you know, you talk about milieu specific analysis and stuff like that. I have, uh, it's also water has been one of those ones I've found is less focused on perhaps than forests, terrestrial things, those sort of spaces. Um, so yeah, that <laughs> I did write the question about being scared, although I'm not scared of the ocean, but I, <laughs> do you, do you come across that a lot? Because I think a lot of people find the depth and the abyssal space and the sort of, it ties into a lot of the science fiction Mm -hmm. ideas, right? About space, but it's the ocean and people have a lot of that fear. You know, I think it comes up for, for a variety of reasons. Um, Some having to do with access, some having to do with uh, the way that, especially for really deep areas of the ocean, you only ever get there imaginatively or through Mm -hmm. chains of mediation through the camera or the ROV that's displaced underwater um, through sonar that, um, you know, maybe makes a top uh, topological map that then you look at later. Um, And uh, there's something I always remembered from Susan Sontag's writings about Mm -hmm. uh, photography um, when she was describing the scene of um, photo or of uh, surgery. And she described Mm -hmm. being really scared watching this, this surgery take place on film uh, because she couldn't turn her head. Mm. Like the camera Mm. selects your view Mm -hmm. for you. And that's actually come up for me a few times when I've been in uh, diving in spaces that some might see, might, you know, might feel are really scary, like the caverns in in Mexico, these cenotes that were, uh, you know, like very dark when we first, Mm. first emerged. And I thought to myself the night before, like, what are you getting yourself into here? (laughs) Like, how's it going to go tomorrow? (laughs) But then my second thought was, oh yeah, you don't have to take seasickness medication. So it's going to be fine. (laughs) And actually what I found was once I was physically there, once I tested my equipment, like three or four times and the, the, it was, it was working perfectly. Uh, it was great. You turn around and you realize you're, you're not scared because you can move in the situation. Mm. Um, so sometimes I think that the affordances of media are actually some of the reason for um, fear in certain situations. Sometimes mm-hmm. not. Sometimes it really just is deep and you're terrified. <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, one time I was, I was completely actually scared of the seaweed, mm-hmm. which is embarrassing to say, but it's situations where you don't really know what something is. And I was mm-hmm. in this relatively shallow location in Monterey and some seaweed upwelled underneath me, but I didn't know it was seaweed. It was just some dark blob the size of a school bus. And I thought, uh, what is this? Uh, and so, but the person I was with was like, oh, let me check it out. Uh, this is when I would, had been recently certified. And so they mm. they went down, took a look. I was like, oh yeah, that's seaweed. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not even, a, and not even an animal. I, we're okay mm-hmm. here. Um, so, you know, all the, I think all these field work experiences are, are mm-hmm. good for confronting, working through, thinking about one's, one's fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, I think for me, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, I mean, we, we do know more about outer space and, you know, and that exploration than we do about a lot of what's happening on our very own planet and just that, that uncertainty and that unknown, um, is just, yeah, to me is, 
it's existentially i think like <laughs> the uncertain like i we don't know what's mm-hmm. down there really and um but yeah um so i'm curious if you could kind of maybe uh give us some examples of of maybe some of the texts that you're looking at what do you consider uh to be a blue media text um do you have any examples and, and you know what why is it qualify as that besides just the fact that it deals with the ocean or yeah, you know, um, I mean, I might be a little more comfortable calling it just ocean media rather than um, blue okay. media because of the kind of rarefication that happens when one names something after a color. Like we've seen this mm-hmm. with green, green and the environmental humanities. Um, and I think there's a there's a tendency with blue. So I, I, I do try to be a little careful with blue, even though it's right there in the title, um, <laughs> you know, signifying, uh, you know, ocean this in some way. But it's it's somewhere to start. So for, you know, really great ocean texts. Um, one that is in a different publication of mine, not in the book, is Amitav Ghosh's Hungry Tide. I love mm-hmm. this text. I think it has a lot of lot in common with the book. Um, and there have been, um, I mean, there's a way that it, you know, maybe could have gotten worked in, but the book is sort of focused on um, these, the, the um, science, the way that the ocean can function um, as a kind of uh, force of science fictional estrangement. So does the, mm-hmm. when does the ocean itself change your perspective about something? There's hints of that in The Hungry Tide, but uh, it's also, you know, this um, text concerned with climate change, dolphins, mm-hmm. entangled histories in the Sundarbans, uh, migration, and, uh, and borders, among other things, um, in a really wonderful moment with uh, imagining a dolphin perspective in the river that's silted that we can't quite see. In Wild Blue Media, another, uh, the, I mean, the texts that I really look at uh, are diving nonfictions, um, because I think that hmm. they're some of the best places to look for a phenomenology of diving. The documentaries don't always cut it. Um, they're sort of more interested in describing what you're looking at, not necessarily the physical sensation of submerging. Mm. So uh, so these narratives by famous folks like Sylvia Earle, Jacques Cousteau, uh, were for me really useful um, as literary texts for uh, looking at how do you read for the f- sort of the materiality or the physical materiality of pressure, um, the experience mm. of pressure. And that's not always something that makes its way into media representations of the ocean, like you might see with Blue Planet, for example. Mm. Um, it may tell you that there's pressure, but it's not telling you what does it feel like? What does it feel like in your tissues um, mm. for the sort of uh, depth that's still humanly habitable temporarily um, and that one one could experience. So I think those are great. Uh, I look a lot also at Willem Flusser's text, uh, Vampiro Toothis Infernalis. Um, this is a, that's a weird one. It's, I think, sort of a, it's a ocean allegory for photography in certain key ways, but all at the same time, it's also trying to be a speculative fiction about what the hypothetical media world orientations culture of this deep sea creature might be like um, compared to ours. So I think of it as a great model for a kind of comparative zoology and comparative media studies at the same time, um, because both center, you know, what, what are the affordances of a body and also um, what are our habits of orientation under specific circumstances of um, gravity. So, you know, what if you're floating at the bottom of the, the ocean and you don't, and uh, handedness isn't quite a thing, or mm-hmm. um, you have radial symmetry, uh, you know, symmetry instead of bilateral symmetry. Um, I think they're uh, sort of fascinating questions coming out of um, his text. I also look uh, not just at text, but also uh, media objects as well. So Google 
Street View or Google Ocean was was a was a big one. Um, and Jason DeCares Taylor's uh, underwater museum was really, you know, thought provocative to uh, encounter both in person and through its its, its mediations on online through Taylor's own photography of his work. Uh, so one thing I really thought about in putting together this project was what is the ocean almost asking me to put together rather than to curate from top down a kind of archive about about the ocean. And so in the book that took me to, you know, different sort of um, material qualities of the ocean. So I was thinking about pressure, I was thinking about inscription and its alternatives. Um, I was thinking about what storage means. Um, and in subsequent work after the book, I, I feel like this also goes into uh, climate change territory too. So how is the ocean also functioning as a place to store uh, heat um, or mm-hmm. other, th- and there's some wild stories with this too. Um, so it's been great to think with alongside um, other media scholars like Nicole Staroselsky on the, on the uh, kind of heat and storage question. That's, am- I am amazed by the way that you've been able to like integrate. I feel like a lot of the field work you've done because I feel like you you bring up a lot of personal stories about your diving what in your writing and today with us and I think it I think it's a really I don't know I don't want to say useful because I feel like that's under set that's not really what I mean because it's more <laughs> it's more like it brings something to the work that I think is is missing from just talking about media for example mm-hmm. and it and you bring it up as well with like where you work for mm-hmm. example like writing near the ocean perhaps for you or being in the ocean, <laughs> submerging yourself um, is an important part of the work. And I, I, you know, I do think that ties into a lot of the history of eco-criticism, for example, about uh, being in the cabin in the woods is your like the way to do things. But I was wondering if you could talk to us more about what you think the effect of bodily maybe being with mm. the space, what that does for your work. And, and I uh, recall in an earlier version of uh, this question, you, um, mm-hmm. the two of you were wondering, like, do you write by the ocean or, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I was thinking like, huh, <laughs> actually, I don't. <laughs> A lot of it is done through uh, recollection and mm-hmm. Looking at mm-hmm. looking at my own um, media afterwards, so I take a lot of my mm-hmm. own photographs and uh, and video. Um, even the bad ones are useful too. One of my favorite photographs was taken with a very early version GoPro that just completely is blurred out inside a shipwreck. But I love it because you can barely see these two fins of the person in front of me, um, and it tells you a lot about the umwelt of the camera or the eyes that you're, you're seeing with um, and how that compares with one's own memory of, of, uh, of the space. Yeah. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of uh, sort of retroactive um, remembering almost. And um, it, you know, it's not unlike other science studies work that draws attention to the way scientists also kind of think with their, their bodies. Like when you're trying to remember, like, what was it like to dive that wall what what position was I in when I was drifting by? Was there something? Was there a way I felt out of control? What orientation was I in? And you know, a lot of the memory of diving is actually very nonlinear for me, probably for other other folks too. Um, even though the tendency tends to be like, oh, what animals did you see? Like mm-hmm. what? Um, and you sort of catalog these out uh, to other folks when you get when you get that get back to the ship or back to the back to the shoreline or when you first pop and like oh did you see that seal um but uh, i actually find it hard to kind of do that and be like okay we saw this 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 and this um 
easier to say is like, oh, I was hiding behind a shelf when the surge of the water was coming over um, and there was a strong tide um, or I was drifting along a wall, sort of limbs akimbo uh, until I got in a certain position that helped me slow down and feel feel more um, more in control. And those are actually some of the major benefits, I think, to doing site visits through swimming or scuba in, in person is accounting for your own positionality in the observation of a particular uh, space, ecology, uh, art installation, um, that sort of thing. And one of the things I was actually most proud of um, when I was a grad student was writing one successful grant <laughs> to uh, justify scuba certification as a humanities mm-hmm. scholar, uh, cool. because otherwise <laughs> I, you know, would have been sort of relegated to writing off all other people's observations and it's mm-hmm. not quite the same. Um, so I think for any, you know, anyone listening, you can, you can make a case for this by saying like, look, if I, if I go swim or dive in person, then I can pay attention to my own conditions of observation, my own orientation to a particular site, um, and what may have been afforded by that in-person experience compared to the way that these underwater spaces are represented in other people's photographs or media. And a lot of the conventions for those are actually through um, frontality. So mm-hmm. whereas I might have found it easier given current the circumstances of a current drifting, for example, mm-hmm. to like hover above something, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times photographs will just try um, to simulate how you would have seen that thing if you were walking. So mm-hmm. they'll use the orientation um, of frontality, um, the portraiture, the vertical, um, rather than other sort of three-dimensional points of view on um, representing something. And I think that those are all key things to pay attention to. And also uh, other qualities, like what were you hearing? Um, was mm-hmm. there a crackle? Could you tell mm-hmm. there, other, um, there was a lot of other anthropogenic noise or life forms like that crackle mm-hmm. comes from shrimp a lot of times mm-hmm. uh, or were was the water cloudy that day um was how easy was it to navigate um how did you feel <laughs> what were the thermal conditions um so these are always in the book that i talk about situated knowledge like and um accounting for your own presence in the in relation to the the environment phenomena whatever it is that you're you're observing and uh, one thing I've had a chance to do after the book is to join a couple um, other uh, oceanographic um, voyages. Mm. A colleague of mine here at UC Santa Barbara invited me to join the, this uh, RV Sally Ride expedition sort of right after, right before the pandemic. We got it in in uh, late 2019. <laughs> um, and, you know, sort of before that, I'd been thinking, like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not that into boats. Uh, but, like, I really more want to be underwater. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was so, so interesting because. I, and I gained a lot of respect for the scientists who do this laborious work. And actually, I mean, diving too, it's, it's labor, it's work. It's, it's, um, and for some people, seasickness, uh, myself mm-hmm. included. Uh, so, so all these ocean observations take a lot of work to get there. And the ocean scientists who uh, use boats for research, they essentially have to move house in order mm-hmm. to get all their equipment on, on the boat. And then they strap it all down because if you think about the fragility of a microscope, it's got to like sort of stay mm-hmm. in place. So those conditions too became an interesting place to reflect on orientation and also movement um, for how observations were taking place. Uh, and I also, uh, you know, would watch them being awake at all hours, scheduling different deployments of <laughs> measuring devices and thinking like, wow, this is 
some of the work that brought meaningful, rigorous climate change data to us. And it's so, it's, it's so intensive. Um, you know, it takes lots and lots of time. Um, and in comparison, you know, I think social media often flattens a lot of voices. You know, how does that, how does like a month at sea way and compare to someone's hot take like in mm-hmm. three sentences <laughs> and I was really mad <laughs> I was yeah. like, this, is, this is so hard like all of us yeah. are you know medicating for sickness you know seasickness yeah. here or um you know losing sleep or you know it was it's a lot of work so yeah. um anyway I have a lot of respect for the ocean scientists and field biologists who are really out there doing uh, data collection um and yeah. um you know putting that out there yes such a it is a very different relationship, I suppose, than a lot of like, I think, of course, as people who are front and talking about literature and the environment as well, the literature and engaging with literature is its own experience. And, but it is so much different in a lot of ways, especially as you're just talking about through the body and the ways in which the body is interacting with and laboring with the creation of that knowledge um, is quite different. I tangent about my personal life. My mother is an environmental scientist and we are very different (laughs) people, although we both study some of the same things. She is on a boat every day walking miles and miles up and down beaches being a steward for preservation of barrier islands. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so that she's, and I can't, I can't, (laughs) my physical physical existence does not unfortunately um, work with that type of life. But I do care very much about the environment. And, you know, so I think that there's every, all of it so important and valuable, but so different. I think you're very right to say that a tweet about it or just posting even just a picture, like you said, of like scuba diving, it really cannot explain the full experience of that submersion. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's at the same time still an important role to play for mm-hmm. uh, sort of the anthropological perspective mm-hmm. on, on on science, which is when humanities scholars go hang out with a scientist, but, you know, mm-hmm. what do you see? Uh, and, you know, if, uh, I think for some things for them, they sort of it, it thing, maybe they won't pause at a certain moment. Uh, mm-hmm. But like when I was on the RV Sally ride, I, I heard so much, this, I mean, it's kind of funny, uh, heard so <laughs> much discussion of like, oh, we got to go MacGyver it that <laughs> just came up again and again. And I was like, oh, you know, there's really something here to the hand built uh, that mm-hmm. seems to be very important for, um, and also, you know, also, I mean, sort of last minute in this too, but like the construction of mm-hmm. these, of these oceanogra- oceanographic tools for measuring. And uh, for me, that was important for another piece I was writing about um, mosaic epistemologies. So like what happens when different, components are put together into this bigger picture of the ocean, especially when you rely on the contingency of uh, limited sampling, like how do those Mm -hmm. discrete pixels or samples like add up into a bigger picture. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh, it's the hands, (laughs) (laughs) the hand put together mosaic. There's something, there's something here. So nice. Um, I want to maybe shift gears just a little bit, but as you've been talking, there's just been like little little words here and there that um, have, you know, you, you, you've talked about positionality and like, you know, the being in the ocean and uh, better understanding your positionality in that space. Um, the idea of like MacGyvering something and then kind of working through a problem and stuff like that. So there's like a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about 
as related to you know obviously the academic side your scholarship um but uh, we also know that you uh you talk a lot about the the pedagogical aspect of your work too and so some of the things that you've been talking about i'm curious how um they inform your pedagogy or um even ways that um you know your students come to understand some of these things through uh praxis in any way, you know, the same way that you have through kind of embodying these things? Uh, it's a great question. And, you know, actually, I have not yet taught the uh, sort of um, applied swimming methods type of uh, <laughs> class here, although it's, it's you know, sort of on the back burner as, as a, you know, possible seminar one day. Uh, I do teach an ocean media class. And my idea in that class is actually to take one step back and let the students uh, determine what methods work for them, mm -hmm. but to pull back and say like, look, what does the ocean have to challenge about objectivity? Um, and how can we see that across multiple different media narratives uh, and in-person um, observations with uh, either, you know, them taking a beach walk or going to, I mean, this is kind of a luxury to have, but we have a campus aquarium too, since we're mm -hmm. right, right on the coast mm -hmm. at UCSB. Uh, and there's one that, um, there's actually two right next to each other. One is part of a K through 12 outreach. It's called the reef. And then right next to it is another aquarium that's much less curated, but serves all the biologists on campus mm. with, uh, collecting different organisms. Like maybe a class needs brittle stars for a certain research project while they, you know, sort of have them there. So one of the things I do is take them to this, um, place. We think about things like creature perspectives. Uh, there's mm. a story I teach by Ursula Le Guin, uh, called author of acacia seeds, um, that. I talk a little bit about in, in my book, but that I think is really the starting place for thinking, for considering oceanic organism specific media sensations or perspectives. Um, I mean, really one thing that brings it home is that a brittle star is going to sense a whole lot differently in the ocean than a whale. Um, mm. So what the ocean is for these two different creatures um, is vastly different on a sensory, on a sensory level. Mm. Um, so I, you know, through some of the readings and field trips, I try to get my students to think about these things, but then take it in a direction uh, that they, that they, um, you know, that they like. Um, we also do, uh, usually do a unit on um, Afrofuturism as well, since mm. there's so many amazing uh, works coming, coming out in response to uh, the uh, sort of Drexia mythos, um, especially within even just the last like three, four years. Mm. Um, and so that's a rich canon to um, sort of introduce students to, have them play with, see what they think about this whole idea of a sonic science fiction. Like how can you speculate through, uh, through sound and imagine, mm. um, you know, imagine unexpected instances of uh, survival. So we do some of that. We look at examples of um, uh, poetry in trans-Pacific contexts, uh, like mm -hmm. Kathy Jetnell Kitchener's uh, EFGEL talk is, is amazing. That's been a student favorite for the last few times I've taught this class. Uh, so, so I'd say that, you know, sort of my, my uh, broader pedagogical orientation is really in getting students to think about the, uh, the construction of objectivity under different circumstances. So that's the science study scholar in me, like kind of bringing a different, you know, a very specific agenda. <laughs> um, and then how they, how they um, sort of uh, take that with the ocean is, is up to them. I would love to have taken a class on ocean, <laughs> ocean creatures. <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, I went to college in the woods, so we just talked about that <laughs> instead. <laughs> so along with your sort of like back burner idea of eventually getting to teach maybe 
through the water in the water, which I think would be very interesting. Would you be willing to tell us more about what other projects you were sort of working on or thinking about for the future? I know you mentioned your seaweed, <laughs> your seaweed <Yeah>. project, which <laughs> I'm sure we would both love to hear about. And hopefully we can hear about again when it's out. But um, yeah, I know you wrote in saturation about kelp. And so is this kind of a seaweed canon you're creating? <laughs> oh, yes. It's a, yeah, I guess a seaweed, seaweed opening. Um, so I can say a few things about this. That piece in saturation was really uh, sort of the first foray into exploring uh, the media of seaweeds. And this happened to me by accident. I mean, one is a coincidence of having been hired at UC Santa Barbara and just seen the seaweeds around all the time, very familiarly too, um, since I grew up not um, you know too many hours away. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was also because a student of mine happened to say, oh, hey, we've... Uh, UCSB has the largest Southern California collection of seaweeds uh, and they're all press specimens that are out at the mm. biodiversity center. Maybe you should go see it mm. <laughs> as a form of ocean media. And I was like, Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> so that opened a, you know, kind of opened a door into exploring where to go with the seaweeds. And, you know, it's, it's almost overwhelming because aquaculture is its whole thing. And there's a lot of hope pinned on seaweeds too. And at the time, you know, kind of in the depths of the Trump administration, I was, it, you know, something hopeful was looking pretty great to try mm. to spend time with. So, uh, I mean, amidst um, other continuing on, ongoing struggles and crises. So the, so, uh, so I started looking at, at seaweeds as these organisms that seem to hold or channel so many, so many hopes for a remediated climate future, for a more sustainable climate future, specifically through how they might function as, as, um, as uh, substitutes or products. There's a, uh, I've been working on a few other seaweed related things since, but the one conclusion I'm, I'm just so curious about is whether seaweeds are a model uh, or a sort of a model minority uh, mm. botanical item in a similar way that mm. this has been talked about in other racial and cultural contexts, mm-hmm. uh, especially through their plasticity and the way that they can just step in and substitute for things we're already using or doing that are, uh, petrocultural products like mm-hmm. seaweed substituting for plastics, uh, seaweed substituting for, or, well, not seaweeds, but other algae substituting as biofuels. Um, there's so many instances you can look at seaweed as a substitute um, to the point where it's like almost this uh, messianic sort of harbinger of, uh, you know, possible, uh, you know, a possible more sustainable future to bring in. And so there's part of me that's like, that sounds great. I'd love to advocate for that. But another, but the critical part is also like, well, you know, you know, take a step back and look (laughs) at uh, just how are people characterizing this? Um, Mm -hmm. What do you make of these stories that are then pitched onto seaweeds Mm -hmm. um, in, in a variety of contexts? And the reality in the U S is that for us, these things, these stories, these um, hopes for seaweed uh, seem pretty new. But on a scalar level, seaweeds have already been amazingly kind of cultured into vast uh, areas of the ocean in places like China, Indonesia, and then South Korea, and um, I mean, Japan in a sort of heritage way, you know, for, for a long time. So we're behind uh, relative to that. And some of the, some of this has to do with um, zoning policies. Um, there's complex reasons for that. But, you know, in, an, in another way, seaweeds in the U.S. are not new. They're in products already they're in toothpaste they're in beauty care products they're in 
ice cream. They're in anything mm-hmm. that needs a kind of stabilizer or mm-hmm. gel like substance. So a media inquiry into, I think I'm going too long here probably, but like oh, a media oh inquiry into, into seaweeds uh, really, um, you know, goes into so many, it touches on so many things. So the problem has really been kind of narrowing this down to mm-hmm. um, what, what one can do in the space of a space of a book. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, so I'm working on a couple aspects with, with that. And uh, I'm also part of this project called uh, Invisible Kelp Forest, where we took inspiration from Ed Yong's new book, um, An Immense World. Uh, Ed Yong is hands down one of my favorite science writers. He's funny. He's uh, just really you know, rigorous in his speculations. Um, An Immense World is just um, amazing and came out earlier this year. Anyway, so Invisible Kelp Forest is trying to do the maybe harebrained thing of translating the chemosensory worlds around a kelp forest into sound. So mm. we're trying to, this uh, project I'm in with uh, three other people who are part of an ocean memory project, Anya Yermakova, Jacob Cram, and Eli Stein. We, we sort of co-wrote a speculative fiction about what this would look like for three different or four different organisms. Um, and then uh, Eli Stein, who's a musician, is uh, adapting that as a not as a sonification, uh, but as a translation, a sort of creative translation mm-hmm. uh, into into uh, sound, and that's actually been bringing me a lot of joy. I, you know, there's certain types of work that are a little harder to do than others, but mm-hmm. that writing that collaboratively together has just been um, really uplifting. So I'm trying to pay attention more recently to the types of work that that do that. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely have to keep an eye out or an ear out for, I guess, the sonification <laughs> one. Within uh, the next year. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, all right. Well, it is time to uh, move on to end on a roll. So uh, I've got my 12-sided die here. I'm going right. to roll it. And whatever comes up, that's what we're going to ask you. So we have oh, – fell off my table. Fell off my table again. <laughs> uh, 12. I think we just had yeah. this one, but that's all right. Uh, what do you like to do on a day off? Oh, I love to go boogie boarding. Actually, uh, it's the it, you know it's a little lazier than scuba diving, but <laughs> it's so it's so fun. <laughs> so uh, that's my ideal weekend is taking time to just play in the surf, but not as competitively as a surfer. So no. boogie boarding is for a very different demographic. <laughs> is, is, is it, exactly. Is it yes. Lazier because like no, yes. I, I, when I was in Florida this past summer. Um, like I was boogie boarding and like my arms and shoulders were throbbing by the end of the day. So it feels very, it's actually an amazing counteractive to the desk, right? So if you mm-hmm. want to counter that slouch, like just go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine uh, uh, actually figured out why I like it. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you for the explanation. Uh, it's because you're horizontal when you're boogie boarding, whereas surfing mm. you're more vertical. So she's like, "No yeah. wonder, Melody, you like you, you like the the fish posture." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have to agree. The st- having to stand up part of surfing is not not my favorite part. <laughs> All right, so thank you again so much for joining us for this conversation. We would love if you could uh, recommend to our listeners a way to find more about you. So if you have a Twitter, if you have a website or any other way that you like having people contact you, if you could share that with us, we'd appreciate it. Sure. Uh, my website is melodychu.info. Um, and I usually try to keep it fairly up to date with publications. So that's a great way to uh, keep in touch. Awesome. awesome. Great. We will put that in our show notes so people we can access will. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you again. This has been a, a great, great conversation. 
Um, and uh, thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Asley Ecocast. If you have an idea for an episode, either something that you want to share of your own work or you want us to reach out to somebody to have on the show, you can get a hold of us on our Twitter. It's Asley underscore Ecocast or through our Gmail, Asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And our Twitter also has uh, the link to our link tree, which has all the different forms and stuff you can use to submit your proposals to us. If you enjoyed listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, and tweeting about today's show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye. 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 Bye.